from the book of Revelation, chapter 5. Throughout the weekend, we have looked at this vision, but now we want to look in depth at this amazing revelation of our triumphant Lamb, our Lord Jesus. So here, Revelation, chapter 5. Then I saw in the right hand of... of start again. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures, and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them, saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for opening our eyes through the eyes of your servant, the Apostle John, Thank you for showing him these scenes of reality beyond the reality that meets our eyes on an everyday basis. Thank you for showing us that though the wrong seems off so strong in daily life, in the ways of the world, in our own lives, and in the affairs of nations, nothing is chaotic ultimately. Nothing is out of control. But the Lord Jesus Christ holds in his hand all authority in heaven and on earth. 
And he is the one who is executing your plan to conquer your people, to capture your people, to redeem your people, and to transform this sin-sick world, this sin-stained world, and to bring in a new heavens and a new earth, the home of righteousness in which there is no stain, no sorrow, no death, no sin. Father, thank you for giving us this vision that we can spend moments thinking about. Write its message deep into our hearts that we might be people transformed into people of gratitude, of confidence, of joy, that we might worship you with everything we are and everything we have, not only as we're gathered here in your presence as your people on the Lord's Day, but throughout our week that we may offer up our bodies as living sacrifices in response to the great sacrifice of the Lamb of God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we began our weekend reflecting on the promise of blessing that Revelation opens with in Revelation 1-3, that if we hear this word and take it to heart, God promises to bless us. And this is an amazing passage that brings us blessing because it shows us the Lord Jesus Christ. It shows us His victory over sin and death, over Satan himself, in the most surprising of all ways, in the cross on which He poured out His life for us. That, I know, is not new news to you, but it needs to be sweet news to you. We need to hear it afresh. We need to see it afresh because it is the news that changes lives and families and communities and the world. That the Lamb has conquered by giving His life for His people. John wrote to churches in the first century that were struggling to hold on to the testimony of Jesus and the Word of God. They were surrounded by cities devoted to paganism, devoted to pluralism, devoted to affluence. Some of those very influences had infiltrated some of the churches as we have seen and heard a little bit in chapters 2 and 3. But now John wants to bring their focus, the focus of their hearts, exactly where it needs to be in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this vision following on the vision of the Son of Man in chapter 1. This vision really takes us into the very throne room of heaven. We're actually jumping into John's vision midstream here. It began at the beginning of chapter 4 when a voice, the voice that he'd heard before, the voice of Jesus Christ, which sounded like a trumpet and sounded like a resounding waterfall, that voice called him up into heaven. He saw a door opened in heaven and it's as if he were granted access into the oval office of the universe, of the whole created order. And in chapter 4, he saw God the Father on his throne, so resplendent in light and glory, a rainbow of colors, emerald especially, a beautiful green was brought out there by John, so majestic. And then he heard the, the, the court attendants, I was going to say cabinet, but... The president's cabinet really doesn't match it. it the, the court attendants 
giving praise to God. Four living creatures whose descriptions blend the descriptions of the Old Testament great figures standing before the presence of God, the seraphim of Isaiah 6 and the cherubim, the cherubim that uh, were in the very presence of God. Their images uh, were in the Old Testament temple as well to emphasize that God has attended as the great king above all gods. And the four living creatures praise God for who he is in himself, for his infinite wisdom, for his infinite power, for his infinite holiness. Holy, holy, holy. We echoed their song. The song that Isaiah heard in Isaiah 6, the song that John hears here, we sang already today. God is limitless in His purity, in His power, in His eternal life. And then God is praised for His works of creation and providence. That everything, He made everything and everything exists by His will. He sustains everything. So God in Himself, God in His works of creation and providence. And then we come to our part of the vision that we heard just now. John glimpses in the right hand of God the Father, the one who lives and is on the throne, a scroll, a book, the ancient way that they would make books, uh, rolled up, probably parchment maybe. It's all in vision, you know. And on the scroll, it's written on the front and on the back, which makes it rather unusual, actually. Typically, they wrote on only one side of the page. But it reminds us of a scroll that was given to the prophet Ezekiel in his prophecy. And the scroll is sealed with seven seals. can't read it until you open it. But here's the problem. Nobody deserves to open this scroll. We might say nobody has top security clearance to open the scroll. Nobody has the password to unlock the file. See, I do know computers, right? Nobody is qualified to open the scroll. That's the question. One of the elders, 24 elders, asked, who is worthy to open the scroll? No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And John fell apart. Uncontrollable sobbing, loud wailing. We might think, why is John so upset? I mean, nobody knows what's in the scroll. John doesn't know what's in the scroll. But at that moment in the vision, he senses if this scroll is not open, if there's not someone to whom God can entrust this scroll to carry out what is written in this scroll, everything is lost. Everything is ruined. So he bursts into uncontrollable sobbing and loud lament. Now, as I said, it's sealed. So at this point, John doesn't know what's in the scroll. But he senses instinctively that it must be opened for God's plan to conquer, reconquer, recapture from his enemy the whole universe and particularly the people whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. What's in the scroll, as it turns out, is actually what we read in this whole book. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to Christ to show his servants what must first take place. And this vision shows us 
God the Father handing the revelation to Jesus Christ. In the chapters that follow, we see Christ breaking the seals of the scroll one by one and visions unfold that describe why the world is the mess it's in. It's not out of control. Christ is in charge. But why there is misery, why there is warfare, why there is bloodshed, why there is famine, why there's disease. He sees all of that. That these things are the instruments by which the Lamb is to demonstrate His justice in the world. Eventually, in chapter 10, with the scroll opened, Jesus' angel will be sent to John. John, It will be delivered to John, and John will be told to open the scroll. So everything that we read in the first couple of verses of this whole book, God gave the revelation to Jesus Christ who sent His angel to send it, to gave the scroll to John, and John delivered it to the churches. It's all right here in these visions of chapters 4 and 5 and chapter 10. And it's the book of Revelation. It's the book of Revelation to unveil how Jesus Christ is the conqueror of all. So it's John knows by the time he writes, he knows what's in the book, but he still wants us to kind of live through his experience of heartbreak and suspense. And I think he does that in order that we can appreciate his joy and the majesty of the one who deserves to open the scroll. The unique authority of the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, the Lamb who was slain. He's impressing upon us the unique authority of Jesus Christ. He has authority to reveal the future because He has the authority to control the future. He has the authority to reveal God's plan to regain His creation from the clutches of an enemy who is only intent on destruction because He has the authority to execute God's plan. Great theme in the Old Testament when God is competing with the idols for the hearts of Israel in Isaiah, God keeps saying in the later chapters of Isaiah, have any of the idols of the nations ever been able to predict the future? Of course they can't. But you know how over and over again I've told you what was going to happen and brought it about because I can predict the future because I control the future. So That's the point here. Jesus receives the scroll. He reveals what's in it. And then he's going to carry it out throughout the rest of history. This vision, in a certain sense, is a vivid portrait of Jesus' last words recorded in Matthew 28. We call it the Great Commission. But even before Jesus commissions his disciples to make disciples of all the nations, baptizing, teaching, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, even before that, he begins by saying, all authority in heaven and on earth, has been given to me. And Jesus' words in Matthew, all authority given to me, make disciples of all the nations, is an echo of the vision of the Son of Man given to Daniel back in Daniel 7, where, John, where Daniel saw the Ancient of Days on his throne, and one like a Son of Man coming in victory clouds to God, it's like the heaven side of the ascension that the apostles witnessed in Acts 1 because Christ is coming into the courtroom and he receives all authority 
so that all nations will serve him. Well, that's what the scroll is all about. Who is worthy? Well, he's the conquering king. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. And he's conquered, like David conquered, the great king from the tribe of Judah. David conquered Goliath. David conquered other enemies of God's people. Actually, the Lord conquered them through David because David knew what his real victory, where his real victory lay. When David went up against Goliath, he did not say to the Philistine champion, you're done for because I'm good with a sling. He said, you come against me with sword and spear and shield. I come against you. Now he's going to tell us what his armor is. In the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel. And in the name of the Lord of hosts, David was given many victories. Such that at a certain point in 2 Samuel, we read that the Lord had given David rest from all of his enemies. A great military champion. This one who is greater than David, who is worthy to open the scroll. The lion of the tribe of Judah. Jacob had called Judah, compared Judah to a lion many centuries earlier when he was blessing his sons. He's a lion's whelp. He's one who's going to get prey like a lion. He's a mighty victor. So John should expect a great general, the head of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, at least. And what does John see? He sees a lamb. A lamb slain, but standing. Isn't that interesting? Slain, but standing. Not lying, lifeless, but standing as slain. That's the gospel in a nutshell, right in that picture. Of course, you know the imagery comes from the prophecy of Isaiah also. Isaiah 53 speaks of the suffering servant who went silent to be slain like a lamb. And even further back, Israel's very lives depended on the death of lambs. On Passover night, the firstborn of Israel were not slain by the destroyer as the firstborn of Egypt were. Why? Because a lamb had shed its blood in the place of the Israelites. And God was saying to Israel at that point, you know, it's, the reason I'm saving you is not just because you can trace your family tree back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not just because of your DNA. The reason I'm saving you is that a substitute has died for you. An innocent lamb has died for you. So John sees a lamb. A lamb who is slain. He is the one who is worthy. He is worthy to take the scroll. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you've made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. So the scroll is opened because we see the Lamb having won a surprising victory. He won by losing his life. He won by giving his life for you. And for me, we visited a bunch of times this weekend that amazing vision in chapter 12 of Revelation where the announcement is made that our accuser, the one who had every right because we're guilty to press charges against us before the court of God, our accuser has been expelled from God's court, has no charges to be brought against us, 
because of the blood of the Lamb. Because of the blood of the Lamb. Revelation 12, verse 11. So by being slaughtered as a lamb, Christ has recaptured us. He has purchased us. He has ransomed us. This wonderful word that is used here in this song in verse 9. You were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God. Ransomed us from eternal death which we deserve. Ransomed us from the control of Satan on our hearts and on our lives. Those sins that we wish we could get rid of and yet seem to defeat us. But ultimately they will be defeated because the Lamb has ransomed us. And notice how many people he's ransomed and how wide the group is that he's ransomed. You've ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. God said to Abraham, when God called Abraham to leave home and head for a homeland that Abraham, he didn't know where it was. God said, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to multiply your children. And I'm going to bring a blessing to all nations through you. Jesus is the source of that blessing. Jesus is the son of Abraham. That's how Matthew starts his gospel. Jesus is the son of Abraham, the son of David. So Jesus is the one who brings blessing to the nations. It's no wonder that the Apostle Paul, acknowledging that the cross of Christ looks to the outside world, looks like serpent, uh, surface appearances, serpent, that fits too, but to surface appearances, looks like weakness, looks like foolishness, a minor criminal in a minor corner of the Roman Empire, done away with through the complicity of the leaders of his own people. Weakness, foolishness, but Paul says, 1 Corinthians 1, this is the power of God. This is the wisdom of God. In his cross, Jesus did, with no military army, with the most sophisticated armament could ever do, he defeated Satan himself. He defeated the one who accuses you. When you know you've done what displeases God, he's answered that accusation by saying, I bore the blame. I bore the blame. So the Lamb has won the victory in the most surprising way. And because of that, he is supremely, supremely worthy. And so we have here songs of praise. I've already kind of summed up the first song of praise. It's sung as the uh, 24 elders fall down and they sing a new song along with the four living creatures, it seems. Both the creatures and the elders sing a new song. We, the first choir in chapter 4 were the four living creatures. The next choir was the 24 elders. Now we've got these two choirs combined. We're up to 28 now. And the song goes bigger than that when we get to the next two. But here it is, the Lamb, the longest of the psalms, praising the Lamb for His redemptive work. And notice what He's done. He's not only rescued us from death, but verse 10, He's made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. A kingdom of priests. God had said to Israel, as a nation, you will be to me a kingdom of priests if you follow me 
with all your heart. But of course, within Israel, there was a tribe and a family of priests. The tribe of Levi, charged to be right around the tabernacle in the wilderness and then eventually to attend to the temple. And within the tribe of Levi, the family of Aaron. And ordinary, everyday Israelites from some other tribe could not go deep into the most holy place. They had to stay, well, as close as any of them can come would be the outer court where sacrifices were offered before blood was brought in to the most holy place. But now God says, I'm making a kingdom of priests out of all nations, out of people who have come from the peoples of Asia and Africa and Europe who have not a drop of Abrahamic blood in them. Go on Ancestry DNA, you will not find so many of us connected to Abraham. But God has a better Ancestry DNA, Ancestry.com. He makes us children of himself through the work of the Holy Spirit. And priests. Priests with access to God. Priests to get to come close to God, as we are in this place this morning. Not because this building is the holy place, but because you who belong to Jesus, are a holy place, a living temple built up to be a spiritual priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices to glorify God. I don't know if any of you have, probably some of you have read at some point John Piper's little book on missions called Let the Nations Be Glad. I'd heard great things about it. And I was a little shocked when I read the first sentence of the first chapter of Let the Nations Be Glad. John Piper says, missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. That's an odd way to start a book on missions. You're trying to get people to go cross-culturally, cross-boundaries of language and race. And you say, missions is not the ultimate goal of the church? But I got it when I read the rest of the paragraph. Missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exists because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. No more need to preach the gospel to people who've never heard it in eternity. But, as he says, worship is a temporary necessity, but worship abides forever. He's really building on what Jesus said to a woman who was an outsider from whom he asked a drink of water. Remember in Samaria, John chapter 4? Jesus said, the Father is seeking people who worship in spirit and in truth. And in that very conversation, Christ had come on behalf of the Father to seek that woman to worship the true and living God. People have brought that gospel to us, have shared the good news with us, one way, shape, or form. Maybe it was Bible translators, and you read the translation of the Bible, and that in itself the Holy Spirit used to bring you to faith. Maybe it was a neighbor. Maybe it was your parents. Maybe it was your children. Maybe it was a co-worker. God is seeking worshipers in all the ways he has to seek worshipers to expose us to the, me- the wonderful good news of his grace by bringing us, first of all, to face the bad news of our sin. 
And that makes us worship. Piper caught, I think, the point of John's vision of the Lamb. The Lamb ransomed us to make us worshipers. People who are overwhelmed with the glory of God. Dazzled by the splendor of His mercy and His perfection. Gathered from all the earth's peoples like you and like me. To worship. Worship focuses on the glory of God. Which means missions are aimed for the glory of God. It's important that we bring the gospel to our neighbors and our friends and our co-workers and our children and our parents if they don't know the Lord. For their sake, certainly. Because apart from this good news, there will be an eternity of sorrow. We saw that in the last Sunday school hour. An eternity of sorrow for those who are not connected to Jesus by faith. But mostly, we're called to share the gospel because, for God's sake, actually, because God deserves to be worshipped by all of the beautiful variety of cultures and languages and song that he's created among the human race. So now we've got 20, 28 singers here in the middle of this chapter. And then, and then the choir expands in verses 11 and 12, you see, to myriads of myriads. A myriad is 10,000, so we're talking about hundreds of millions of angels singing, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. If you were keeping count, that's seven. In Revelation, seven means it's complete. Everything we can offer, everything that we are, everything that God's given to us, we can offer back to Him because He's worthy to receive it all. So the choir gets bigger as the angels sing praise to the Lamb for His redemptive work. You remember that intriguing statement over in 1 Peter where Peter talks about the Old Testament prophets being shown the sufferings of Christ and the glories that follow those sufferings, really a, a key to how you to understand the Old Testament. And he says that it was revealed to them that they were talking about you and the salvation that you received now in the light of the fulfillment of God's promises in Christ. And then he says these are things that angels long to lean over and peek into. That may not be quite the version you're reading, but... It's pretty much what he's saying. Angels kind of look in from the outside on our experience of salvation. They never fell into sin. They never needed grace. And that means we can praise God for a dimension of His perfection that we've experienced that make the angels marvel, but they haven't experienced in the way we have. Theologians wrestle with, with the question, why would God allow sin into, into history at all? And in a certain sense, if God is wholly good, we we're maybe always be mystified by that. But my hunch is, it has something to do, God allowing sin, we made the choice, our father Adam made the choice, and we're all along with him. God made that choice to let us make that choice to display the wonder of His grace in the gift of His Son. 
so the angels praise the Lamb. Sevenfold praise from the angels. And then the choir gets even bigger. You see that in verse 13. Every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them, which sounds like it was already every creature. John's going overboard here. Everything, everywhere, praising God and the Lamb. The Father, to Him who sits on the throne, and the Son, the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever. John hasn't forgotten the Holy Spirit. He certainly, in fact, in the the benediction, will reference the work of the Holy Spirit too. But he's emphasizing the unity of this triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in this amazing work of redemption. Blessing, honor, glory, might forever and forever. We hear these songs about the redemptive work of Christ. In chapter 7, part of which the choir sang to us, we actually hear the redeemed singing. There's another song there. In fact, the songs continue throughout Revelation. But I've got to give you this one glimpse of a climactic, endless, international worship service in which we are going to get to engage someday. John sees a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. You hear the echoes from Revelation 5? This great multitude standing before the Lamb, before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Our great God, through the Lamb's sacrifice, has brought rescue. Salvation. Restoration. Ransom. Recreation. Paul says we're already new creation in Christ. But actually, we're looking forward to new heavens and a new earth. A new body that won't break down and give up on us. And a heart that is wholly devoted to God. The Spirit's already at work. He's already at work on that. Think about it. A multitude that no one could number. Can you picture that? When I was in college, Christian college uh, on the West Coast, I I first, I think it was the first time I really met uh, the the wonderful hymn, For All the Saints Who From Their Labors Rest. Powerful hymn, wonderful hymn. Uh, Several of the verses thank God for the way he sustained the saints, including the martyrs. Uh, And then... I began to get a little misty when I got to the fifth verse, which looks to the end of history and talks about the saints triumphantly rising in bright array as the King of glory passes on his way. And then I basically lost it altogether and just others sang and I just wept. Because the last verse gives the picture of the victory of the Lamb and the fruit of it all. From earth's wide bounds, from ocean's farthest coast, through gates of pearl streams in the countless host, singing to Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Hallelujah. We're not a countless host here today. I didn't do a census, so I don't know quite how how many we are. But the day is coming when God, and of course our brothers and sisters are gathering in Jesus' name all around the world today. So that gets closer to countless. But it's going to be even more countless than that. God says so, Revelation 7, when we stream in from 
earth's wide bounds and ocean's farthest coast. Revelation gives us that vision. It shows us Christ in all of his victory. And it shows us his aim to bring the peoples of the world to his feet through the power of the gospel. So Revelation is really about world missions. World missions spring from the triumph of the Lamb. Our efforts to spread the good news of this lordly Lamb are grounded in His unique authority, spring from His surprising triumph in the cross, and aim toward His supreme worthiness to be praised by all God's people in all the languages of the world for all eternity. That's quite a view. And that's practical. You know, I didn't tell you two or three things to do this week to change your patterns of behavior. All I wanted to do was help you see the beauty of Christ that will fortify you for whatever temptations and trials you have in this next week, month, year. Look at Him in all of His glory. See the power of the weakness of His cross. Let me lead us in prayer. Father, Father, how thankful we are that the Lamb is the Lion. That the Lion of Judah triumphed by becoming the Lamb slain for us. That what bare muscle and power could not do, your amazing sacrificial love has done in paying the debt of our sins drawing us into fellowship and friendship of your family and cleansing us so that we can be priests who worship you, who adore you, who delight in you, who take pleasure in giving you pleasure for all eternity. Father, we praise you. We praise you for sending the Lamb. We praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We praise you for the work of the Holy Spirit who moves throughout the world to bring the good news of the Lamb through the preaching of the Gospel and to drive your word home to hearts as you've done to our, our hearts. And as Pastor Smith prayed earlier, Father, we pray if there are people here today who have not until now discovered the amazing good news that they can be free of guilt and shame and fear and free to worship you, to know you personally, that even now as they've heard of Jesus, and all that he's done, that they would be drawn to trust and rest in him and join that countless host that will praise your name forever. We pray in Jesus' name.